0: Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three martinis coming up. Are you ready for this week? I have a feeling it's going to be a pretty crazy week from uh, top to bottom, but uh, it's good, bad, and crazy Today. Uh, glad you're with us. Grab a stool. And before we get to our three martinis, Jim, uh, funny moment, at least for me, and I think for you, too, since we spend a lot of our time writing during the day, driving into the office today and an ad on the radio comes on for Mark Warner. He's our two term Democratic senator who's up for re-election this year, probably going to win again, but he's up against a Republican named Daniel Gade, who is a uh, wounded Iraq War veteran. And so Mark Warner's ad talks about how wonderful he's been on bringing home all this relief for COVID, for people, for businesses, and on and on and on. And then, of course, it goes to the dark uh, uh, discussion of how horrible Daniel Gade supposedly is. Apparently, he said something disparaging about wearing masks at one point. And then it goes and says, that's the same Daniel Gade who opposed the Affordable Care Act which would take away health care for 400,000 Virginians. Now, if you know anything about writing, they're admitting that the Affordable Care Act is taking away uh, uh, health care for 400,000 Virginians. So, Jim, sometimes your
1: opponents just do the work for you. Yeah, I would. Say, there's an old saying, and you know, particularly if you're writing for newspapers or magazines, but they say, look, read your sentences out loud to make sure they make sense to the ear. And this probably goes double for scripts of radio ads. <laughs> Since they will be read out loud and most people are going to hear them, not see them. You know, actually, the other thing that kind of jumped out at me uh, from that statement there, Greg. One, you remember how unpopular the Affordable Care Act used to be, right? Yes. And now, of course, every Democrat is running on it. And the poll numbers generally shifted in favor of it shortly after Trump took office. One of two things are true. Either what bothered people the most about the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare, was the individual mandate, that that's what really stuck in their craw. They didn't like the idea of the government making them buy health insurance or putting a special tax upon them if they don't. And then as soon as Republicans got rid of the individual mandate in the tax law, uh, that it basically took away, that, that kind of took away the thing that bugged them the most about it, and now they feel more favorably. Or there were a whole bunch of people who were telling pollsters that they opposed the Affordable Care Act and they wanted to see Obamacare repealed, but they didn't really mean it. <laughs> <laughs> and as soon as it became real, oh whoa whoa whoa! whoa, 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 whoa uh, don't believe what I was telling you the last couple of years.
0: Yeah, it, it's, it's as soon as something actually gets on the books, people's minds change, and they just don't want uh, whatever the new option is. I don't know, but or maybe they believe the uh, Democratic talking points. The other thing that's uh, not completely against the point you're trying to make, like in that Mark Warner ad, that's bugged me for a while. Nancy Pelosi did it on election night 2018 when she uh, got back uh, the speaker's chair, essentially, and she went out there and said, thank you. Let's hear it for pre-existing conditions. Okay, (laughs) pre-existing conditions are not good. We want to protect people who have pre-existing conditions. When you start cheering for pre-existing conditions, you're not saying what you think you're saying.
1: It was even worse, Greg, when the whole crowd in front of her started chanting, go pre-existing conditions, go pre-existing conditions. (laughs) Yeah, you don't want to cheer for that. That's bad.
0: Messaging people, messaging. But uh, anyway, why are we helping? This is all a
1: bonus. We haven't even
0: gotten to the martinis yet. people. (laughs) Why why are we helping Democrats with their messaging? That's that's not productive. Because we know they won't listen to us. That's why, Greg. (laughs) All right. Let's get on to our good martini. And uh, within a few hours, this will be a fantastic martini. Jim, we're on the brink of Supreme Court Associate Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Yesterday, the Senate went through the procedural motions. Uh, Now we're having all the speeches about why she'd be great or why she'd be the worst thing ever if you're uh, a Democrat. But we're headed to a final vote today. Looks like it's going to be 52 to 48 because Lisa Murkowski of Alaska who upon the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg said she did not want a Supreme Court confirmation process this close to an election. She's now saying she will vote to confirm Judge Barrett. So it's going to be a party line vote with the exception of Susan Collins, who says she will vote against Amy Coney Barrett. And so after voting against conviction on impeachment and for Brett Kavanaugh, not sure that's going to be the best political move for Susan Collins, but hey, that's that's her decision to make, I guess. But uh, whether Mike Pence is allowed into the Senate because Chuck Schumer's throwing a hissy fit because some of Pence's aides have covid uh, doesn't look like the vice president's going to be
1: necessary here. Looks like it's going to pass with a couple of votes to spare. Well, first of all, if there's any question about whether Pence can come in to break a tie just get somebody in like one of those full chem bio suits with like a really reflective visor. And, you know, it doesn't even have to be, doesn't have to be Mike Pence. Just have somebody go in. Yeah. It's totally Mike Pence. Are you sure? Fine. Do you want to make him take off his suit? You know, you, you go ahead. You got close to him. So um, interesting developments here. I, I think Collins voting no, <laughs> you know, I, I don't look, she's in a tough reelection fight. I don't think this necessarily helps her. I think that, you know, that uh, you need your base to be as fired up for you. And while Collins has always been this moderate, different kind of New England Republican, um, you know, presumably Republicans in Maine want to see Amy Coney Barrett confirmed and probably going to be disappointed by this. Some will still vote for her. In fact, probably most of them will still vote for her, but some might be disappointed. Some might stay home. Uh, some might leave the, blank, leave the ballot blank there. Murkowski's the more interesting one. And Murkowski, very early on, had said she did not believe that the Senate should move forward with the nomination. Lisa Murkowski is not my favorite senator, but I kind of think there's a certain internal consistent logic to her position. She sees the question of whether the Senate should you know, confirm a justice now before the election and the, the uh, merits of Amy Coney Barrett as two separate questions. Thus, she's going to vote no on cloture. In fact, she did uh, vote against moving forward the nomination. Uh, She basically believes that based on how the Merrick Garland uh, nomination was handled four years ago, that consistency requires Republicans to not consider a Supreme Court justice. Now, I kind of subscribe to the viewpoint that, uh, you know, the the powers of the president, the powers of the Senate are the same in that fourth year of the presidency as they are in the third year. If you want to argue that Merrick Garland should have gotten a confirmation hearing, I I can hear that. I can see that that point. Uh, But if, you know, they'd held uh, confirmation hearings for Merrick Garland the Republican Senate probably would have have no, and we'd be right back where we started. So um, I don't think they're being giant hypocrites here. Your mileage may, may differ. But Murkowski recognizes that just because she believes they shouldn't go forward with this doesn't mean she should necessarily vote against Barrett. The Senate has had its vote. Will they move forward with a nominee? Yes, they will. Once that has been decided, Murkowski thinks it's a separate question. And she comes to the conclusion that almost every other uh, Republican senator has come to and basically is uh, yes, this is an extremely qualified judge. She is uh, just right to be the one the next associate justice. I think really the only suspense right now, Greg, is you know maybe does Joe Manchin vote no or vote yes? I mean, is, you know, that's there's really only at this point there's not a single red state Democrat who really is up for reelection who would have to say oh, I, I if I vote you know no, I might lose my seat. And, of course, last time, a bunch of them did vote against Kavanaugh, and you saw how it worked out for them in the Senate midterm elections.
0: That's true. No, Manchin's definitely a no. He said from the get-go, kind of like Murkowski, that he thought the process was all wrong, uh, Harken back to 2016 when the Republicans uh, refused to uh hold hearings and so forth on Merrick Garland. So he said uh, to be consistent with that, he was not going to support uh, this process or this nominee at this time. And, of course, based on a couple of years ago, Jim, now that Susan Collins is opposed, Joe Manchin, there's he knows where he's going to line up now because that's what he always does.
1: Yes, it took him several <laughs> milliseconds after she announced her decision for him to come out with his. But uh Look, let's see. You know, we all know the most important factor here. It's that Manchin's not up for re-election.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, you know, we don't know for sure what this is going to mean for the Maine Senate race. But if Collins loses, this is the official end of the Maine Nice Lady Caucus.
1: Ah, yeah, I wrote for the Banger Daily News <laughs> back in, let's say, 2001, 2000, 2001 to 2004 or so. Which meant I did a lot of coverage of Susan Collins and Olympia Snow. I also wrote for the Bergen Record and Marge Raukema was part of my uh, beat as well. So I felt like I was on the, the Republican Nice Lady Caucus. I, I just kept dealing with one one nice lady after another whose general politics could just be described as nice.
0: <laughs> I, I don't know why, but uh, when you said Marge Raukema, the old, every time I hear that name, I think of, for some reason, John McLaughlin just screaming it, going, Marge Raukema said this. Uh, You know, obviously many, many years ago. But uh, anyway, uh, a little bit of a different kind of sponsor for today's episode. It's the Jordan Harbinger Show, which is a podcast a lot of people are really enjoying right now. Uh, The show was named one of the best by Apple in 2018, and it's aimed at making you more informed, uh, a better thinker, so you can get a sense of how the world actually works. Uh, A lot of times dealing with politics, a lot of times uh, it it deals with uh, topics that might come up to the edge of politics, and sometimes it's just different things. One of Jordan's main goals here is for you to find out how the world actually works and to come to your own conclusions about the topics that really matter.
1: You know, there's an episode for everyone, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by both the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode all about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick and how going on or off the pill can change elements of our personalities. Is that the Thomas Crown affair
0: with the art? uh, That's more art thievery, right? Maybe not art forgery. Uh, Yeah, there's lots of different episodes with topics you can find interesting. There's one with H.R. McMaster, the fight to defend the free world, and one that could uh, be potentially useful for politicians right about now, how to change anyone's mind with Jonah Berger. Uh, But anyway, the podcast covers a lot. One constant is Jordan's ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guest. You'll find something you can apply to your own life. So go to jordanharbinger.com slash subscribe or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, Jim, let's go to our second martini now. And we talked at the end of last week about Joe Biden's performance at the uh, final presidential debate where Trump got him to basically say, yeah, I want to transition away from oil. And then the campaign had to scramble to put out a statement and, uh, and, and kind of back away from that. But apparently Joe Biden, uh, as we've seen before about the Green New Deal, doesn't read his own website. Uh, when it comes to his proposed policies for energy. But see Boyden Gray. Talk about a uh, Republican graybeard. He's been around a very long time. I think he was uh, maybe chief counsel in the George H.W. Bush administration. He's, he's been around a long time. But he's taken a look at this uh, on, on Biden's website, and he wrote this for Real Clear Politics. For the full picture, voters should take a look at Biden's official clean energy plan. The Biden plan borrows the Green New Deal's ambitious goal of a carbon pollution-free power sector by 2035. Burning natural gas, methane, inevitably emits carbon. So the Biden plan requires eliminating even natural gas for electricity generation by 2035. Oh, but it gets better. This Green New Deal goal would never get congressional approval, but that may not matter. Biden promises to achieve his clean energy goals by fiat, issuing executive orders of, quote, unprecedented reach that go well beyond the Obama-Biden administration platform. A Biden administration would move to achieve its goal of carbon-free electricity generation through an even more aggressive version of President Obama's Clean Power Plan Regulation. So, Jim, uh, it would also require utilities to idle, then dismantle their natural gas power plants. The first thing I would say is 2035 may seem a long way off, but when you think that uh, if you go back 15 years, it's 2005. And for people like us, that seems like yesterday. So it comes pretty quickly. And then, of course, you've got the executive overreach here. So uh, what do you make of the latest revelations of uh, Biden's energy disaster?
1: You know, Late last week when I went through the uh, Biden comments, most of his, we're going to get, you know, get rid of fossil fuels comments come when he's confronted by some environmentalist protester, heckler, uh, sometimes supporters after a speech or something. And he generally tells them exactly what they want to hear. And then he campaigns in Pennsylvania and he tells them exactly what they want to hear in the vein of, oh, I'm not, not going to get rid of fracking. Democrats want to have it both ways. They want to have uh, a much more green, I'm not even going to say future, I'm going to say near future, uh, a, a much more, an, you know, a, a situation in which we stop emitting carbon in our energy uh, production almost entirely within, you know, a decade and change. And they also want not to have, at least they tell us it's not going to have any significant sacrifices in the energy prices or uh, anything else that we, you know, our lifestyles we live right now. Now we are very, very gradually moving towards zero carbon source electricity. When I say gradually, I mean, 2001, about 28% of US electricity came from zero carbon sources. This actually up 2019 is the first year, we, is the most recent year we have complete figures. It's up to 38%. So almost 20 years, we increased it 10%. We could get there as long as you're willing to wait decades and decades and decades, but Biden isn't willing to do that. Oh, by the way, when you look at the figures for 2019, Fossil fuels, natural gas, coal, that's like 62%. So the good news is 38% are from clean electricity. But of that, more than half of it is nuclear, 19% total. Greg, I haven't heard Joe Biden singing the praises of nuclear energy. Have you? No, not at all. Renewables. Yes. Renewables. We can't have yeah. nuclear energy in this country because Jane Fonda made a scary mu- movie about it back in the <laughs> 70s. And because of that, that is, I believe, in the Constitution that anything that... you know. Um, Now, wind, hydroelectric, solar, biomass, geothermal, all that stuff, 18% of all current US electricity generation. So you look at this from 2035, that's just really not realistic. It requires some sort of like enormous wholesale giant changes and you'd have to impose stricter gas mileage standards and weatherize, you'd have to do a ton of stuff. Um, And the Biden administration is, don't worry, we'll do it. And I don't know, I'm not even gonna try to get, try to get legislative buy-in for this goal. I'm just going to, you know, stroke of the pen, law of the land, pretty cool, as Bill Clinton used to say. I'm just going to do it by executive order, and that's going to make it happen. The bad news, the reason this is the bad martini is that sooner or later, the rubber hits the road. And if, um, in, in that, to continue that metaphor, the car stops running. No. Um, you basically, the electricity demand is not going to go down in the next 15 years. And we're going to need to generate more. Could you? Know, is it natural to say, yeah, in the next fifteen years we're going to generate more from not from clean energy? Sure, sure, that, that's plausible. Is it going to be one hundred percent? No. Is it going to be close to one hundred percent? Probably not. Even with this, you know, Herculean effort here. So uh, Joe Biden is basically making wildly unrealistic promises, but most people are okay with it because they kind of want to be lied to on some level. They want to be told that they can have their cake and eat it too. That they can have entirely green energy and not have any changes to their lifestyle of the way it is.
0: Jim, you mentioned the Jane Fonda clause in the Constitution, or really what any popular Hollywood celebrity wants needs to become policy. Is that right in the same section as the fervent wish of a uh, dying Supreme Court justice?
1: That is actually etched on stone tablets there, right? (laughs)
0: Hey guys, it's Mock
1: and Daisy from Chicks on the Right. We're excited to tell you about our podcast, the Mock and Daisy Common Sense Cast. From discussing topics like cancel culture, what's happening to our new generations, crises in our nation, and even some high-profile interviews, each week we touch on subjects that matter to us and matter to you. And we're not afraid to tell you how it is. So tune in every week to hear us talk about the things, or even just get a good laugh. To find out more, go to our website, chicksontheright.com, or start listening on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to leave. Leave a comment or review and subscribe.
0: All right, let's get on to our final martini now. And I think this definitely qualifies as crazy. Uh, Joe Biden, um, if you watch the debate on Thursday night, didn't have any massive gaps. But if you watch, especially the last half hour, you could kind of feel like the battery was uh, running down. He was uh, stammering sometimes and uh, losing his train of thought a little bit, but nothing overly egregious. Nothing like what happened uh, when he was uh, taking part in the I Will Vote concert uh, with CNN analyst Ana Navarro and actor slash comedian George Lopez, which might factor into this a little bit here. But uh, Joe Biden seemed to forget who he was running against. This is the most consequent, not because I'm running, but because who I'm running against. This is the most consequential election uh, in, a, in a long, long, long time. And the character of the country, in my view, is literally on the ballot. What kind of country are we going to be? Four more years of George Georgia, he uh, is going to find ourselves in a position where if uh, Trump gets elected, uh, we're going to be uh, we're going to be in a different world. Jim, that one is definitely cringeworthy, I have to say. Um, it's not like Joe Biden's been going at that much of a breakneck pace, certainly on the campaign trail. So remembering who your opponent is and who the president of the United States is doesn't seem like a huge bar to clear.
1: In in Biden's defense, Greg, um, his opponent's pretty obscure. <laughs> very quiet. It, it's not like people have heard a lot about Donald Trump over the last five years. It's it's kind of an obscure, hard to pronounce name. He doesn't get a lot of news coverage. You don't see him on TV very much. He, he He's really a newcomer. It's not like he's been in American life since the 1980s. And I think what would really help Biden is if his opponent's name could be on big gold letters and skyscrapers you think we could arrange that you think that'd make it easier to remember oh man um, because like here's the thing it's yeah you know, remember when you know Obama had his infamous 57 states comment and clearly what he, he was thinking 47 57 came out of his mouth although somebody once pointed out how many states are there is the sort of question they ask you if they're testing you for a concussion on the sidelines of a football game you know you that's really one you should know there. Who are you running against really also strikes me as another one that's that's pretty straightforward. Also, this isn't really eminent, any evidence of um, any serious mental problems on Biden's part. He's been doing this for decades and decades. But do you notice that Joe Biden keeps using the word literally when he means figuratively all the time? Oh, yeah. The character of our country is literally on the ballot. I mean, both of you guys are characters. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you that. But uh, no, no, you know, it's it's actually going to be the candidate for president of the United States is going to be on the ballot. But he keeps saying literally this is, you know, no, I mean, you mean figuratively, Mr. <laughs> Vice President. And you use the word literally for I really mean this, not, you know, this is literally true. But uh, I guess I guess that is one way of reaching out to the youth to vote, right? Let's hear it for pre-existing conditions.
0: Yeah. Uh, clear. Literally. <laughs>
1: yeah, <I don't>
0: <laughs> Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Don't forget to check out the Jordan Harbinger Show at Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. Leave us a five-star rating, a kind review. We're always extremely grateful for those. Remember, you can get us on those home devices, too. Just say, play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And join us on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.